We welcome you back to The Bookcase. I'm Charlie Gibson. And I'm Kate Gibson. And this week we are going to feature a writer who has got such a wide range of what she can do. Anna Quinlan first came to my attention, and I think to the attention of the world, when she was invited to write a column a couple times a week for the New York Times on their op-ed page, which she did for years and then left to write novels and to write nonfiction. And she writes all of them well. She has extraordinary range. This one is called Write for Your Life. What's that mean? It's different from her other books. You know, my personal favorite is Alternate Side. I love Alternate Side, but we'll talk about that in a minute. That's this a is novel. A, that's a novel. That's a novel. But this is a bit of a departure for her because I would consider this almost a, a what? Almost a plea in book form. It's about writing. It's a plea for readers to talk about the importance of writing. That sounds about right, right? She asks everybody who reads the book to then turn around and start writing. You're going to have to hunt for this book a little bit. I don't think it's going to be out on the bestseller uh, shelf um, or table in your bookstore. It's a little tome. Yes. You can read it in a couple of hours. But she basically makes the argument that you want to write. You, the reader, want to write. And you want to write for your relatives, for your future generations, and for history as to what the times were like. So she says, don't be afraid of it. Just do it. Just start writing about your everyday life. As she points out, her ancestors, particularly her mother and father, didn't write enough. She wants some of their writing, and she wants it in a particular form, or at least some of it. She talks about the importance of letters and diaries and cards, of really, you know, you be, you're able to experience that person, even if they're not with you anymore. So even if you say, I'm not talented, I can't write, I'm, I have no talent. Let me tell you, your relatives will treasure the writing, whether it's good or bad. And I'm so glad that we're doing this show after our visit to the Library of Congress, because there were two things we looked at that I thought illustrated the importance of writing, and particularly handwriting. The first was Frederick Douglass's document where he was talking about the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. And you could see his editing. You could see his thought process. You could see that when he wrote it, he was angry. There was emotion in the editing. And then we looked at Lincoln's Gettysburg Address and you're looking at him handwriting it and you're going, oh my gosh, he was so smart. He never crossed anything out. Like it looked like there was no editing. So that both of those documents without being about the men themselves, told me a lot about the men themselves, if that makes any sense. Well, the second page of the Gettysburg Address was written just on a piece of foolscap, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. just a little piece of lined notebook paper. And their suppositions, the conservationists at the Library of Congress, their supposition is that he got to Gettysburg, he walked the battlefield, and he thought, I got to change the ending of this. And so he did it. First page was on Executive Mansion stationery, handwritten. Second page, as I say, was just on a piece of, of notebook paper. But Anna Quinlan makes the argument that, you know, there's no time like the present. Don't put it off, because if you put it off, it may never get done. She says, and I'm, I'm quoting her in the book, there is a rule about when and where to write. And here is the rule. There is none. Mm -hmm. and, and she says, you can even eat with one hand and write with the other. I know there are mayonnaise stains on many of my notes. She makes the argument, as I say, it's a good argument. It's an important argument. You write for your future generations, because they want a piece of you, and they would like to see it in a handwritten note. I have my uncle's letters that he wrote back to his fiancée when he was fighting in World War I, and they are, I, I just treasure those. 
Anna makes the argument better in, in your own hand, in long hand, do it. If all I had from you, dad or mom, was a shopping list in your handwriting, <laughs> I would treasure that. And I think she's making that point. I think she even says, I have some innocuous documents of my mother's that weren't even really addressed to me. And yet I treasure them dearly because she held the pen. She pressed the pen down onto that paper. She held the paper. The paper in some ways holds her memory. And it's an important thing to think about because keystrokes on a computer don't 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 hold that same sort of, I don't know, history to it. Even though she says in the kids' lunchboxes uh, every day mm -hmm. when they go off to school, good thing to do. She starts with probably the most famous example of handwriting and how it can become so important. Uh, she starts with Anne Frank and her diary and how fortuitous she wrote it. Uh, she put in her diary, I want to go on living even after my death. And she certainly did with her diaries. Here's our conversation with Anna Quinlan. Anna Quinlan, it is wonderful to have you in the bookcase. And I think this makes a very nice little set of podcasts that we've been able to do because Oprah talks so much about the need to read. Uh, Azar Nafasi talked about the need to read dangerously. And you talk about the need to write. Everybody, write. Why? What I want to try to communicate in this book is that everybody who is literate can write, not necessarily for an audience, not necessarily to be published, but to put their own story down on paper so that perhaps 30, 40, 50 years from now, their children or grandchildren can look at it and say, this is where my family's from. Or conversely, to look at it the next morning and think, I wrote about something that perplexed or frightened me. And now that I see it on paper and I look at the words that I've put down, it doesn't seem so perplexing or frightening anymore. There's something about writing things down that either gives them more or less power. Less power because you look at them and think, oh, that. And more power sometimes because you think that's important. That's something that I need to remember. And I'm going to remember it because I put it down. You write in Write for Life that you are a writer because of teachers. Who was the teacher that conveyed that message to you that you were just talking about? Uh, Mother Mary Ephraim, my eighth grade nun, beloved in memory, who one day said to me, when she was handing back a composition that I'd written, you are a writer. She didn't say, this is good. She didn't say, this is good writing. She, she identified my identity, which is so powerful and never more powerful, I think, than when it comes from what I consider the second most important people in any kid's life, which are their teachers. And I won't say that that's necessarily why I followed the path I did, but the fact that it is so powerful in my memory means that it must have been some sort of a turning point for me psychologically. It seems almost, Anna, as if writing is becoming a lost art. Are we not doing a good enough job of teaching writing? Well, unfortunately, the National Writing Project, which was started in Berkeley in the 70s, did a study about 10 years ago that showed, in fact, that there's much less writing going on in schools than there once was. 
And certainly than we think there is. There's very, very little discursive writing and more of the kind of, there were three main causes of the Revolutionary War uh, identify and describe, which is kind of a second cousin to a multiple choice question. It doesn't really ask you to, to reach down for anything eloquent. And I think there's a number of reasons for that. And I'm not going to ding teachers on, on this because I, I do feel like I am a writer because of teachers. But they're under such pressure to teach to the test, first of all, because there's so much high stakes testing going on. It's harder to grade writing than it is to grade, especially discursive writing, than it is to grade, say, that kind of multiple choice question. And some teachers, some young teachers, may be a product of that school system that didn't do much writing and are therefore not so comfortable with discursive writing as part of their curricula. So I think there's a number of reasons why this is the case, and I really hope it changes in the years ahead. You talk about handwriting, and you say in Write for Your Life, in looking at the handwriting, the manuscript, the crossing out, I imagine the man, and there's the simple truth. Something written by hand brings a singular human presence that the typewriter or the computer cannot confer. When we talked to Carla Hayden, and I asked her what the first thing was that she had to look at at the Library of Congress, she talked about looking at Frederick Douglass's papers and seeing a letter that he wrote after Lincoln was assassinated, and she saw that he had crossed things out, and he wrote assassinated, he wrote killed, he wrote murdered. I guess what I want to ask you is, without these letters, without these handwritings, what does nonfiction writing look like in 50 years from now, do you think? Well, that's a really good question, and it's something I've thought about a lot. I've got to say, the handwriting chapter was the least popular chapter that I worked on um, <laughs> for my early readers. Um, there was a sense that handwriting was a ship that had sailed. And to some extent, I think that's true. I mean, I have no brief against you writing a letter to someone that you love and doing it on the computer and then printing it out. But if you sign your name at the end, it gives it this sense of, of being an artifact that I talked about. It gives that sense of you were there. That's the thing about Frederick Douglass's, oh my gosh, what an incredible thing to be able to see. You look at that and think, Frederick Douglass lived. He lives on the page in ink. And we've relied on those things over the years. We've relied on the letters of James Joyce and the letters of Edith Wharton and their manuscripts with the edits in them. I mean, what you just referenced is the manuscript of A Christmas Carol, which is in the Morgan Library, where you can see Dickens' constant crossing out. And I think of the great writers today, are we going to have that? The novelist Mary Gordon says in the book, no, we will not. The first draft to the final draft will be lost within the computer, and we won't have that. And I think certainly for scholars of language, that'll be a considerable loss. It brings to mind a New Yorker cartoon that I saw recently of a man getting a job interview, and the fellow who's interviewing him says, it, it, it says here on your, on your uh, vitae that, that you know cursive. What's that? 
Um, it's like it's like a totally lost art but more than just writing by hand you emphasize that people even if they think they can't write even if they think they're no good at it that they should be writing even if it's just for themselves or just for their kids and that they will get better at it uh, as they go along but that's a powerful incentive for people, but there is also so much to overcome to get them to do it. Well, I just think that once you start, you'll realize that power, that once you put a few sentences down, I mean, someone was saying to me the other day that they get up every morning and put a little note in their kids' lunch bags. I mean, the immediate reaction among the moms I knew was, wait, you have time to write a note to put in your kids' lunch bags. But even if you did that every once in a while, I mean, think about how memorable that would be. Think about that kid 30 or 40 years out saying, my mom used to put notes in my lunch bag. I just think there's something about that method of communication that's valuable and that we've lost because we've let email and texts overwhelm it. You can send emails to everybody you know, and then on important occasions, you can stop and either on the computer with your name signed at the end or by hand, write them a note and say, I want to memorialize this moment. You talk about just writing being so important, just getting started. So when you started writing, when you said, okay, this is going to become my job, how did you start writing and how has the process of writing for you evolve throughout your career? Well, I was incredibly lucky because I started in the newspaper business as a copy girl when I was 18. And you don't have to worry about how the process is going to begin when someone sends you out on a story. You certainly don't have to worry about writer's block. I mean, if you say to the city editor of the paper, you know, I'm feeling a little blocked today, you're going to be finding another job. So the newspaper business was an invaluable asset to me because it taught me how to write when I didn't feel like writing. And it taught me how to sit down every day and do it. And it taught me how to write tight, which I think is really important. Some of the books I read nowadays could benefit by being 40 or 50 pages shorter than they are. And it taught me to find those telling details that illuminate a situation or a person for the reader. And all those things that I learned in newsrooms, I took home to my desk when I started working as a novelist. I think what you say is absolutely correct, that if people just sit down and start writing, even if it's for themselves, even if it's for their family and future generations, it's important. One question you ask, which I think is fascinating, you say, think of it this way, if you could look down right now, and see words on paper from anyone on earth or anyone who has left it, who would that be? Kate, I ask you that question. Who would it be? Oh, wow. I I actually somewhat know the answer to this question because I've saved two letters. One is from you that you hand wrote to me, and one is from your father who type wrote it but signed it. Those letters are very valuable to me, and I hold on to them because I know exactly what Anna's talking about. The idea that you guys touched them, that you used ink on them, that you thought through your words when you put them to paper, those all, those make those letters that much more sentimental for me. What about you? Oh, in me? In my case? Yeah. My mom. My dad used to write letters all the time, and they would be just two paragraphs. Anna talks about 
putting a note in the lunch bag. It was the similar thing that he would write. But as I said at his funeral, every line, no matter what the subject, every line said, I love you. And that's really critical. And I have saved a lot of those letters. And Anna says in the book, there are no journals written by my father. If I could go back in time, I would ask him to keep one. But maybe like so many people, he would think it's a waste of the scant hours in his day. Why would he ask? Why would he ask that I should do that? What would I write about? I would offer you, the reader, the same answer I would have given him. Nothing, everything. I wouldn't care about revelation. I'd just like a piece of something. That's all I want. Just a piece. It's your dad that you wanted to hear from, huh? And it's even more personal than that, Charlie, because go to the end of the book and there's a chapter about history and how we understand history. And it was so enriched and illuminated by a book called Pioneer Women, which is a collection based on a woman in Topeka, Kansas, who a hundred and some years ago reached out to the women who had settled that state and said, can you send me an account of what it was like to settle the state of Kansas, to come there when there was Native Americans who had been living there for millennia and dig dugouts that you lived in before you built houses and hand make clothes for your kids and take care of them when they were sick and sometimes watch them die and dig their graves. And this is granular history. This is history as written by the women who built ordinary lives. And so much of history is written by prominent white men who did what are considered great things, wrote the Declaration of Independence, you know, or or signed the Emancipation Proclamation. But as somebody who writes novels and as somebody who lives a very granular life, I treasure those accounts from those women in Kansas. We lose that kind of history if ordinary people don't write about their ordinary lives. And that's another reason why I think that we need to write, because we need to know what real life felt like in the year 2022. We're getting quite personal, but I didn't really give Katie a full answer to that question. The reason I would like to hear from my mom She was probably anorexic in a day that we didn't know what anorexia was, but she got kicked out of private school because she wouldn't eat. And she had a piano teacher who said to her, because she played by ear, you should be a concert pianist. You're that good. But that wasn't done in the age that she grew up. And you didn't work. She was extraordinarily smart. And she didn't work because that was not done by women in the time. And finally, when I cleared out of the house as the youngest kid, she went to work and she was very successful. But she didn't start till the age of, oh God, what was she? She would have been 60. So I wish I had all that. I wish I had some remembrance of those days of realizing that she couldn't work, realizing she couldn't be a concert pianist because that wasn't done. Anyway, as I say, we've gotten very personal here. Don't you wish she kept a journal, Charlie? Absolutely. Absolutely. The same way you wish you had a journal from your dad, I wish I had one from from mom. I want to switch gears here for a little bit because I will kick myself if we have Anna Quinlan on the show and I don't ask a little bit more about the scope and breadth of her work, of which I am a fan. Your writing about your characters is very intimate, and I wonder what your process is to get to know them so intimately. 
Well, I'm a really character-driven novelist. I don't care about plot at all. It took me a long time to figure out that if you put certain kinds of people in rooms together, they would rub up against each other in certain ways that would actually lead to plot. My first novel is called Object Lessons. I had never written a novel before. And when I gave it to my editor, Kate Medina, in paper form, she said to me very sweetly, the writing is beautiful, Anna, and these characters leap off the page, but nothing really happens. (laughs) And and she gestured down to the manuscript and said, and that's why we call this a novel. (laughs) 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 Something needed to happen. But I always start with character, Kate. And usually I start to think about a character when I'm doing the revisions on the novel beforehand. I'm sort of like, you know, the way chain smokers used to light one cigarette off the other. I sort of light one novel off the other. (laughs) And I usually am just doing walking around thinking about that character. Over time, it's almost always a woman. Her profession becomes clear to me her marital situation, her birth order, her friends, things like that. And when there's enough stuff about her, that's when I start to sit down and write. But it's, it's, always, it's always about the characters. And how many characters would you do that for? I usually only do it for my protagonist in the beginning because it, it's a little bit like the domino theory, I suppose. Once I begin to really know her, I have a pretty good sense of how she'd be with her kids. I have a pretty good sense of what kind of people she'd want to be friends with, what kind of marriage she'd have. If you build a character from the ground up in a particular way, you don't have endless choices. She will only speak in certain ways. She will only act in certain ways. She will only have certain kinds of relationships. And the more you get to know her, the more your choices narrow, which is in some ways liberating because it shows you the way. When you really know your protagonist, then you kind of know where you're going. Well, you make a very good case for why we should all be writing. At the end, you say, if those unaccustomed to the act of everyday writing can find ways to recover that urge to sit down and produce thoughts, musings, letters for their children, their friends, the future, we will not only know what happened during their lifetime, but we will know how it felt. Those who write it, own it. Today and always, why not you? And it's a good question. Why not each of us writing for future generations or just for ourselves? Anna Quinlan, it is a good admonition that you give us in this book, and we really appreciate you talking to us. Thank you. Charlie and Kate, thank you so much. What a great duo. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. As in previous campaigns, it's 
The economy stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news stupid. It is the economy stupid. It's not the economy stupid. It's national security stupid. It's the hair stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. So here we go with the rapid fire. Anna Quinlan, book, e-reader, or audio? Never audio. Sometimes book, sometimes e-reader, depending on where I am and what I'm reading. Do you spend more time reading or writing? Oh, I spend much more time reading. Other than hanging out with my kids and and grandkids, reading is my favorite thing in the whole world to do. Do you write in longhand or on a computer? (laughs) I write on a computer, even though I talk about writing in longhand for the book. And in fact, I talk about two novelists who do write in longhand, Jenny Egan and Mary Gordon. What's the most influential book in your life? Oh my gosh, this is such a Miss America answer. I would have to say, overall, it's still the Bible, just because I grew up on the New Testament, and it had such a hand in shaping both my politics and my personal ethos. Favorite book to read to your kids? Oh, gosh, there are so many. But I have to say, when we all read A Wrinkle in Time together, oh, it was magical. I can't wait till my grandchildren are old enough. A revered book? that you wish you hadn't read? A revered book that I wish I hadn't read? Wow. Oh. Oh. I will circle that answer by saying my elder son and I argue all the time about Moby Dick. Who's on which side? Quinn is a big Melville fan. He's incredibly well-read. But he tends to go more towards what I think of as cold novelists, like Joseph Conrad and Melville. And I tend to go towards warm novelists, like Edith Wharton. We also argue about the House of Mirth. He doesn't understand why I venerate it. And I return the favor on Moby Dick. When you're starting a book and you realize I'm not liking this, do you put it down or do you force yourself to finish it? I used to force myself to finish every book that I began, but I will soon be 70 years old, and I've decided I don't have enough years of reading left to to be able to do that. Um, I can forgive almost anything except ham-handed prose. When I read a book and the prose is just really clunky, that's a moment at which I say life is too short. Do you read your reviews? No. I found in the past that I didn't learn anything and the bad stuff always stuck to my ribs and I didn't need that. So no, I don't read my reviews. And finally, Anna, in five words, what would you like the rest of your life to be? I would like to spend a lot of time with my family and a lot of time putting words on paper which is what my life has been for most of my life and why some days I feel like the luckiest woman alive. 
Anna Quinlan, again, her book is Right for Your Life. But as I mentioned at the beginning, her range of books that she's written, some wonderful novels, Alternate Side, you mentioned, uh, which is a very New York-centric book. Anybody who knows New York will love it. One True Thing, Object Lessons, two of her other books. But something that my wife loved as a teacher and as a school head was about being perfect, that some parents want their children in some ways to to measure up to perfection. And no kid's going to do that. She thinks it's a wonderful, wonderful book for parents. As I say, she's got a lot of range, and her columns in the New York Times was must-see reading, as far as I was concerned. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I think of her writing as sort of funny. Adventures in Nanaville is about her experiences being a grandmother. I think of her sort of an irreverent, funny writer. But this book is really a beautifully written plea about why writing is important. I don't know. I hesitated to call it a manifesto, but I think, (laughs) but it's, but it really drove home for me why I treasure every letter and card that I'm sent by the people that I love. And why I should be doing it more to the people that I love. We asked Carla Hayden about how we're going to keep track of what goes on in computers, you know, because you can't track letters and diaries and research the same way that you used to be able to, because society used to be mostly epistolary. That's That was communication back then. And you lose something, I think, when you you don't have that. Or that's what I took from this interview. One of the things that we have done with independent bookstores, we have written a number of them and asked if they would come on and talk about their bookstore. But we've gotten some suggestions from listeners. Uh, Which about, is really cool. About, yeah, exactly, about bookstores that we ought to consider. And one of them came from a somebody had written a review of the podcast, and they said, I, I hope you'll talk to my friend Sharon at Bookbound in Blairsville, Georgia. I'd never heard of Blairsville, Georgia. I looked it up, 616 people. How do you make a bookstore go in a town of 616 people? Well, I would imagine that you need things to read, not to overgeneralize about small towns, but how much do you have to do? Well, it turns out there are a lot of uh, tourists coming through Blairsville, Georgia. It's up in the mountains (laughs) north of Atlanta. But she was charming. She's a retired English teacher, and she bought a bookstore, and she's having a good time with it. Here's our conversation with Sharon Davis at Bookbound. Sharon Davis a bookbound bookstore in Blairsville, Georgia. And I'll bet most people who are listening have never heard of Blairsville, Georgia. Sharon Davis, how did you get into this business and and what was the process? Well, um, I am a retired English teacher of 27 years from South Georgia. I'm now in North Georgia. And owning a bookstore is something I have wanted to do for as long as I can remember. Uh, My girls and I, who are also avid readers, used to drive by a place in our small town of Sylvester, Georgia, and uh, there was a storefront, and we had it all planned out. We moved to North Georgia to be near my daughter and granddaughter and decided to go ahead and open up a bookstore in this area because there wasn't one. So I took a year of research during COVID, during the 2020 year of COVID, and did a lot of research and took the jump and went ahead and, and opened up here. And it's been very successful. So you got 660 people in Blairsville, Georgia. How would you describe your readers that frequent your store? We have the Blairsville, the city itself, of course, is small. Union County is larger. Uh, Union County's population is around 20,000. And we're a tourist town. And we only have a couple of months out of the year where we don't have a good bit of tourists because we are in the mountains. 
we are surrounded by Chattahoochee National Forest. We're on the Appalachian Trail. And so we have a lot of tourists that come in looking for regional titles about the Appalachian Trail. And then I have my local readers who love reading the latest whatever has just come out. What sells, you know, if you're looking to explore that mountain area, what are some of your favorites? Well, uh, Ben Montgomery wrote about Grandma Gatewood, who, and that one's a very popular title here. It sells out constantly. She was the first person at 67 years old to walk the trail three times. And in 1955, she was the first person to walk that trail entirely alone. So she has a really interesting history, you know, abusive marriage and and a difficult uh, past. But then she also started in with the Appalachian Trail Conservancy and so forth. So that one is very popular and sells very well. That's a go-to book. You said you were a teacher, English teacher? Yes. High school? Yes. Literature? Yes. (laughs) So what books did you have your students read and... If I come into the bookstore, are those books still in your heart and you try to get customers to buy them? Yes. Uh, One of the classics that I taught that I still love is Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury. It's very relevant in today's society. He said, you know, science fiction becomes science fact. And it has in the society that he explains in that particular novel is, is happening today. So that is one. And the other book that I taught and is my favorite book of all times is Khalid Husseini's A Thousand Splendid Sons. Actually, I sold a copy of it this morning just saying when people come in, you know, what book do you like? And I'm like, let me tell you about this one. Because it takes place, begins when the Soviets left Afghanistan and the Taliban took over. And then it's all the way through 9-11 when the uh, U.S. went into Afghanistan. But of course, now we know that the tables have turned again and we can see how the women are treated in Afghanistan through that novel. And it's heartbreaking, but it's also very promising. Now that you have gone from teacher to bookstore proprietor, are your students your customers? Well, sometimes. I am now from where I taught school. I'm about a five-hour drive from where I taught. But I do have, I've had probably about 10 of my former students who have visited in the last year coming up here. And I take pictures with them every time. And I post them on my Facebook and Instagram. And when I move to a bigger spot, because I have outgrown my spot already, I'm going to have a wall of my former students and I. You said you're ready to move on to a bigger space. You got your eye on anything? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. There's a a small place in town, and it's still right here on the square. Uh, We run the small town, and if you look, we have the courthouse and uh, just the quintessential small town America. And they're going to be building a new building, which would almost triple my space. In local bookstores, we always love the staff recommendations. Yes. But you're so small. Do you have a staff? I do. They're part-time staff, but I love them all. They're three ladies. Have they come up with any staff recommendations? Emma is, she's our young adult special person. Her very favorite right now, she said, was The Gilded Wolves by Roshini Chosky. I'm sorry, I've mispronounced that. Nobody hold it against you. I can barely pronounce my own name. <laughs> but that is hers, uh, her favorite, and it is a young adult fantasy. 
And April, who she likes a wide variety of books, but her favorite, uh, and she is a, an animal lover, is The Art of Racing in the Rain. And we just finished reading that in the book club, and it was absolutely amazing. That is her mm. favorite. Mm. And then Trisha's favorite, uh, she loves The Magnolia Palace that was just recently released. And so that one is, is her favorite. Sharon Davis, it's great to talk to you. Taking the Plunge, opening a bookstore in tiny Blairsville, Georgia, population 616, 80 miles north of Atlanta. If you're vacationing in that area, stop by. Sharon will greet you and sell you a book to read on vacation. Sharon Davis, all the best. A year in, and we hope flourishing. Thank you very, very much. And I appreciate your podcast and, and what you do for booksellers. Sharon in Blairsville, Georgia. I am really excited that a listener wrote in and suggested a bookstore. That shows that people are engaging with our show, and I, I was really excited about it. We appreciate the suggestions. There are some more of them, and we will uh, try to get to the bookstores you mentioned, as well as the bookstores uh, that have already said they would like to be affiliated with this podcast. So that's it for this week. Next week, we'll be talking to... A very good, good friend of mine, Jay Ryan Straddle. He's a great writer um, and a lot of fun to talk to. Kitchens of the Great Midwest, the Logger Queen of Minnesota. We'll be talking to him next week. He's a dear friend of mine from where I went to college. And I've had a chance actually to know Anna Quinlan a little bit. Not a whole lot, but we were on a judging panel together. Her writing is not only wonderful, but she is charming. And so after we mention the folks who put this podcast together, we'll have a final thought from Anna Quinlan. The Bookcase is a production of ABC Audio, produced by David Canada in conjunction with SureCam Productions. Brenda Salinas-Baker is our senior producer. Liz Alessi is our executive producer. Special thanks to Josh Cohen, Iru Ekpanobi, and Elizabeth Russo. I believe that everyone can write and everyone should. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.